Bibles tonight to the book of Colossians. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand and the ushers will bring a Bible to you. And as usual, the back uh, southwest quadrant of the sanctuary is in darkness. So if someone would uh, flip the light switch so that the people back there can, well, wake up, you know. Colossians chapter 1, and we'll be picking up in verse 15. He was a seemingly normal baby. He was born to relatively poor parents. And in an obscure time and in an obscure place. He was the son of a tradesman, one of seven, but in many ways, very much an only child. He lived in obscurity. He was a good boy, grew into a quiet man. He had no particular gifts or talents that would make him stand out in a crowd. You probably wouldn't recognize him if you passed him on the street. But what was it about this young child's birth that would cause a king to slaughter thousands of innocent children to try to take out this young man and keep him from ever living his life? What is it that would cause grown men, rugged men in his adulthood to forsake everything, to leave their fortune and their careers and their family, to follow him, to give their whole lives to know him and to walk in his footsteps? What would it be about him that would cause the multitudes to crowd villages and homes just to hear the things that he would say and to keep company with him? What is it about his words that would cause the people to say, we've never heard someone speak with such gracious words, or never a man spake like this man speaks? What was it about this man, so common, so obscure? How is it that this seemingly average man could seem to have authority over the very creation itself? Stilling wind and wave and even calling the dead out of death and back into life. Or that even thousands of years after his departure, he's still affecting lives. And his name is still offending kings. And his doctrine is still astonishing men. Who is this man they call Jesus? It's the question that Herod asked the wise men when he was just a young child. It's the question his son asked his disciples nearing the time of his death on the cross. And it's the question that has crossed the heart and the mind of every man, woman, and child that has lived since Jesus departed from this earth. Who is this man, Jesus? And it's the question that the Apostle Paul answers in our text tonight in the second half of Colossians chapter 1. You say, but the Colossians knew who Jesus was. They were Christians already. They were believers. Paul has already established that in his introduction, that they had heard and received the gospel, and it was bringing forth fruit in their community and in their lives personally. So why would Paul have to give to them a description of who Jesus is? It seems like it's, it goes without saying. Paul's wasting his words. No, no. See, they knew who Jesus was. They could tell you what the gospel is. They had heard it for themselves. They had received it. And yes, their lives were being changed by it. But there was something in their understanding of who Jesus was that was missing. There was an intellectual understanding, but there was something experientially wherein they were falling behind. They were missing the mark in something. And thus Paul, in the second half of this chapter, gives to them the most comprehensive description we have perhaps in all of the Bible concerning exactly who Jesus is. And then what that 
then means. Who he is, first of all, but what are the implications of who he is and of the gospel that they had received and that we ourselves also have been touched by? What exactly does this mean? Well, Paul begins in chapter 1 in verse 15, this description of Jesus, the Son of God, the Redeemer, by saying that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, the Old and the New Testaments alike both declare to us that no man has seen God at any time. Even Moses, when he was in the cleft of the rock and the glory, the hinder parts of the glory of God passed by, Moses didn't see God. And even in New Testament days, no man has ever seen God at any time. Now, the problem with that is that man, you and I, associate almost everything with a picture or with an image. When we were children, we would pick up a book, and if the book didn't have pictures in it, we would put the book down because we weren't interested in the book that doesn't have pictures. When I became an adult, there better be a diagram or an illustration or else I'm just not going to get it because I just don't do very good with words alone. I need a picture. Even in a description, there must be some type of an illustrative language to it or else I'm just not going to get it. I need a picture. It's like that little kid who was going to bed and his parents tucked him in and, and, and shut off the lights and they went back into their room. And a few minutes later, a cry was heard from the child's bedroom. And so the parent, the mother, she went in the room and she said, what is it? What is it? And he said, mommy, I'm I'm just scared. It's dark in here and, and I'm all alone. And she said, oh, son, you're not alone. God is with you. Jesus is with you. He loves you. And he says he'll never leave you or forsake you. He's with you. Okay, mommy. I'll be brave. And so she turns out the light and she leaves again. A few minutes later, a cry is heard. So she comes back in and again. He says, I'm just scared, Mommy. I tried to be brave, but I'm scared. And she said, no, Jesus is with you. He'll never leave you. Okay, Mommy, okay, Mommy. And so she leaves again. A few minutes later, same scene. The cry is heard. She comes back in. And the mother is about to speak. And the little boy grabs his Mommy by the nightgown. And he said, Mommy, I know that Jesus is with me. I know he'll never leave me or forsake me. But mommy, I just want someone with skin on. (laughs) And that's a lot like man when it comes to God. Yes, we've heard. Yes, we've read. We've been informed. We've sat in church But there's something about a picture, there's something about an image, something that we can look at and observe that concretes our understanding and allows us to comprehend the things that we're hearing and seeing. Well, God knew that we would need that, and thus he sent his son. And so, Paul writes, and he says, he is the image of the invisible God. In John chapter 14, Jesus was with his disciples for the last time. And while he was there, among other things that happened, Philip, one of his disciples, said to Jesus, he said, show us the Father and it will suffice us. And Jesus looked back at Philip, probably grinning from ear to ear, and he said, Philip, have I been with you for such a long time and you haven't known me? And then he says these words. He says, Philip, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus was the incarnate image of God. John chapter 1, verse 18. It says, no man hath seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father... He hath declared him. The word declared means revealed or brought into focus. Just as Paul is telling us here in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, that he is the image of the invisible God. The word image is the word icon. It's where we get the word icon. And what it means is the exact representation. 
that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. In other words, if you want to see the Father, if you need a picture, then you need not look further than the person of Jesus. Jesus is the image of the Father. If you want to know the voice of the law, then you listen to Jesus as he took the woman who was taken in the very act of adultery, and he says to her, woman, where are those thine accusers? She says, there is none, Lord. And he looks and says, neither do I condemn thee. Go your way and sin no more. The voice of the law is grace, Jesus. You want to hear the voice of the prophets? In Luke chapter 4, Jesus found the place where it was written in the scroll of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to open the eyes of the blind, to give you know, legs to those that couldn't walk, to the lame. And then Jesus put down the scroll and he said, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your midst. As he read the prophets and the people marveled and they said, we have never heard someone speak with such gracious words. The voice of the prophets was grace. What was the voice of the father in the garden of Gethsemane when Adam had sinned and he hid himself there amongst the trees? And God said, Adam, where are you? What was the voice of God? Was it, Adam, where are you? What was it? Or was God confused? Adam, where are you? If you want to know, you just look a few thousand years into the future, into another garden where Jesus was being betrayed by his friend. And he looked and he said, friend, betrayest thou the son of man with a kiss? You want to know the heart of the Father, you look at the person of Christ. He is the image of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He goes on to say, after that he is the image of the invisible God, that he is also the firstborn of every creature. The firstborn of every creature. Now, firstborn there can mean succession. But more often in the scripture, it means rank. Not succession, but rank or priority or preeminence. When Joseph brought his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to Jacob, his father, to to bless them. They were there in Egypt and Jacob was about to pass off the scene. And the Bible says that his eyes were dim. He couldn't see very well anymore. And, and Joseph brought his two sons for the sake of Jacob's blessing, that Jacob might put his hands upon them and give them the patriarchal blessing, which was custom in Israel in those days. And knowing that Jacob couldn't see very well, Joseph put Manasseh, the firstborn, the one who was first in succession, he put him on Jacob's right side so that Jacob's right hand, the right hand of blessing, would go upon the firstborn, the first in succession, Manasseh. But when the two boys were brought, Jacob purposely crossed his hands. And he put his right hand on the head of Ephraim and his left hand on the head of Manasseh and, and, and then began his blessing. And Joseph stopped him. And Joseph said, no, no, no. You've got it wrong. This is the firstborn. And he sought to move Jacob's hand. But Jacob said, no, it is the Lord. This one is first. Not in succession, but in rank. And it was prayed the way that Jacob put his hand. Now, God concurred with Jacob's blessing. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 9, at the end of the verse, if a thousand words come up on the screen, just look at the end of the verse where God declares through the prophet, he says that Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, Ephraim was not the firstborn in succession, but he was the firstborn in rank. He was God's choice for preeminent. And when Paul here in Colossians chapter 1, when he says that Jesus is the firstborn, he's not saying that he was created, that he was the beginning of creation successively, but rather he's telling us that he is the first in rank. And how is he the first in rank? Well, he goes on from telling us that he is preeminent, that he's the firstborn, to telling us it's because he is the creator. Look at verse 16. In verse 16, he says, For by him... Were all things created. 
So if all things were created by him, then that would naturally put him in the place of highest rank. Now notice that. Maybe you missed it. But who does the Bible say created all things? Jesus. He breaks that into three categories there in that verse. He says, for, all, for by him were all things created. And then he specifies three categories. He says, that are in heaven and that are in earth. First, by realm. Everything that is in heaven and everything that is in earth was created by him. He is the author, he is the architect, and he is the builder. He thought of it, he designed it, and he constructed it, both in heaven and in earth. Every realm created by him. Not just realm, but also dimension. He goes on to say, visible and invisible. Things that can be seen with the eye and things that cannot be seen with the eye. That can maybe only be perceived or only be believed. But yet there is an existence to them, a substance to them, though they are invisible. And it says that he is the creator of all things that are visible and invisible in every dimension. And then every system. He says whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. He is the creator, and he is preeminent, and he reiterates that by saying in verse 17, for he is before all things. That he is first in rank, in highest place, highest position. There is no authority, there is no court, there is no appeal, there is no judge that is higher than Jesus. He has been placed over all. He is preeminent. That's the word. He's preeminent. So, thus far, he's told us that he is the incarnate image of the invisible God. He's the sovereign, preeminent creator of all things. And then, at the end of verse 17, he tells us the next thing concerning Christ, who he is. He says that by him, all things consist. That by him all things consist. The word consist is more accurately translated sustained or held together. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, the writer of Hebrews says the same thing with these words. It says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. That is, that he holds, literally, he holds all things together by the word of his power. That is, that he is the sustainer of all things. He holds all things together. Now, follow me for one second. Because at the very core of every created thing, there is a scientific contradiction. This stool that I'm sitting on up here, is made up of trillions and trillions of atoms, A-T-O-M-S, the smallest building block of all matter that is used for physical things. Now, inside the nucleus of that atom, we're talking, you know, electron microscopic, you know, in size. The nucleus of this atom tucked inside of there are a bunch of positively charged Particles, protons and electrons that are spinning around at an incredible rate, so much so that it makes this surface feel solid. These protons and these electrons. Now, here's what baffles scientists, and this is the contradiction of all science, is that those atoms, the building blocks of this matter, those atoms should be falling apart. Because the protons and the electrons that are inside the nucleus spinning around are all positively charged particles. Now, my little son Riley, who is just a year old, he is beginning to understand what happens when you put positive charges in close proximity. Because he plays with the little Thomas the Train engines. You ever see those before? And they're linked together with little magnets on each end. And, you know, you can make these long trains that are all strung together with these tiny little magnets. However, if you try to put the wrong side of a car with the, or, or the positive side of the magnetic charge with the next positive side, and you try to put those two things together, you can't do it. 
because positive charges repel from each other. We've all tried to do that with magnets, try to make the positive sides stick, and you can't. It's Coulomb's law of electricity. And it says that like charges repel. Now, tucked inside the atom, the basic building block of all matter, are all of these positively charged particles, and there is no negative. And scientists, to this day, cannot explain why the atom stays together. They don't know what holds all things together. We do. Jesus does. Though it doesn't make sense that it should be held together, yet he holds it together. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the preeminent, or I'm sorry, he's the incarnate image of the invisible God. He's the sovereign, preeminent creator of all that exists. And he holds all things together or sustains all things that exist. That's what he does. Now, Thus far, all that we've seen of Jesus is painted with a very broad brush. These things are all universal. He's the sovereign God. He's the creator of all. He holds all things together. But the Colossians might be thinking, and so might you, well, what does that have to do with me? In verse 18, he brings it a little bit closer to home. In verse 18, he tells us also about Jesus that he is the head of the body, the church that he is the head of the body, which is the church. The church is first mentioned in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. And when Jesus spoke of the church to Peter, he spoke of it as something that belonged to him, that it was his. In Revelation chapter 1, when John sees a vision of the resurrected and glorified Lord there in heaven, John observes and he sees one who's walking in the midst of seven golden candlesticks. And then he tells us that those seven golden candlesticks are the seven churches. So Jesus built the church. He said it was his church. And he traffics and walks among the candlesticks, among his church. It's his. He is the head of it. He owns it. You say, well, by what right does Jesus lay claim to the church? Well, number one, he created it. And if he created it, then he has exclusive rights to be the head of it. But not only does he own the church or lead the church by right of creation, but he also owns it and leads it by the fact, the right of the fact, that he was the first member of it. Look at what Paul goes on to say there in verse 18. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning. Speaking of Jesus. The firstborn from the dead. Jesus was the first one that rose from the dead, which is what successively all of us do that bring us into this body, this entity that's called the church. We are born again. We are crucified with Christ Nevertheless, we live, yet it isn't I or us that live, but it's Christ that lives in us. It's called being born again. But Jesus was the first one that was crucified and then rose again, and he was the first member of this church, of which the Bible tells us he is the head. I'm so thankful that Jesus is the head of the church, aren't you? Because there is no such thing as a perfect church. Do you know why? Because churches are made up of people. People aren't perfect. This church isn't perfect. You've been here for any length of time. You know that. And yet I still rejoice, even though this church isn't perfect. Do you know why? Because as one of the pastors here, I know, and the leadership of this church, we declare and we pray that Jesus be the head of this church. That he would be the one that leads this church. And when Jesus is the head of the church, the victories and the strengths belong to him but also do the problems and the shortcomings. It all belongs to Jesus. He is the head of the church, and he declares himself to be that. And because he created it, and because he was the first member of it, Paul finishes by saying that in all things, there at the end of verse 18, he might have the preeminence. Not only over creation itself, but also over the church and over God's people. He is the preeminent one. For it pleased the Father, verse 19, that in him should all fullness dwell. 
So Jesus created the church. Now, what was his purpose for creating the church? Why did Jesus create the church? Look with me at verse 20. It says, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him, that is Jesus, to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in heaven or things in earth. The reason why God created the church and set Jesus over it was so that there would be a way that would be established for man, fallen man, to be reconciled and redeemed back into God's favor. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, making a way wherein we could come into fellowship with God, have peace with God again, and it would be through the blood of the cross of Christ. A way wherein man could be brought back into fellowship with God in a way that satisfies both the requirements of heaven... That is, in heaven's chronicles, the deal would be sealed and the account would be secured that, yes, this person has been bought by my blood. They've come through my son and to his cross, and therefore they can be saved. It would be satisfied in the chronicles of heaven, but it would also satisfy the conscience of man on earth. Things in heaven, it would be reconciled. Things in earth, the conscience, it would be reconciled, and it would be done in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, Paul writes this. He says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and have committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And then he says in verse 21, he says, For he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the purpose for God in creating the church was to provide a way wherein man could be reconciled to God, wherein man could be saved. Now here's how it affected the people in Colossae. How did this plan, this means of reconciliation, affect the Colossian Christians? Verse 21, he says, And you, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now hath he reconciled. He says, you were alienated. The word alienated means separated. It means estranged. It means blinded. It means without purpose and without hope. They were alienated from God, cut off. They didn't know his life or what it was. Alienated, and also he says that you were enemies. To be an enemy of God means that you're at enmity with him. You're under his wrath. You're under the condemnation and the judgment of God. Like it says in, I think it's in Psalm chapter 7, verse 11, it says that God is angry with the wicked every day. And prior to reconciling with God, that's where unredeemed man stands in the condemnation, under the judgment of God. Not in his favor, not in light, but in darkness. Alienated and enemies in your mind. And he says, by wicked works. That is, that in times past, you lived according to the dictates of your sinful flesh. You didn't care about God. You didn't care about the purpose for your life or how to glorify your creator. But you simply lived to satisfy and satiate your lusts and desires. You were enemies in your mind by wicked works. But because of the blood of the cross, the way that was provided by Jesus Christ, now you are reconciled. The account in heaven has been settled. Your conscience on earth has been cleared. And now you've been brought into fellowship with God. And this was done, verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. He has given absolute righteousness. He says that now you once were enemies, you were alienated, you were given to wicked works, but now you are holy. 
The word in the Greek means sanct, S-A-N-C-T. It's where we get the word sanctify or sainthood. And it means that you are clean. That you once were alienated, but now you are clean. That God looks at you, and when he sees your life, when he sees your account, when he examines you, he sees perfection. He no longer sees someone who's an alien, who's estranged, who's under his wrath, who he's angry with, but now he sees someone who is completely clean. He sees the righteousness of Christ when he looks upon your life. You're holy. And then he goes on to say, not only are you clean, unholy, but you're unblameable. That means that you cannot be blamed any longer. In other words, it would be like this. How many of you have ever been working on your computer and you have been creating a file, maybe a Word document or something where you've been laboring for hours and all of a sudden some demon gets into your computer and corrupts the file? And no matter what you do, even if you throw the computer on the floor, you ain't getting that file back. It's been corrupted. That's what this means, that you are now unblameable. In other words, if somebody wanted to go in and try to put some sin on your file, they couldn't do it because you can't access the file anymore. It's un, you're unblameable. It cannot be written upon. It has been completely annihilated. It doesn't exist anymore. So that means your future sin is blotted out just as much as your past sin or your present sin. You're unblameable and unreprovable. That that's what Jesus has made you and he has done it through the blood of his cross. So here's what Paul has said so far. He says that who is Jesus? Who is this man that turned the world upside down? He's the incarnate image of the invisible God. He's the sovereign, preeminent sustainer, or I mean creator of all things. And he's the sustainer of everything that exists. And he's the head of the church. And listen, he's the savior of everyone who comes to God through the blood of his cross. That's who Jesus is. Now, in verse 23, Paul issues a warning. And listen carefully to this warning. After hearing that you are holy and unblameable and unreprovable, listen to what he says in verse 23. He says, if you continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. He gives this parenthetical warning. Now listen. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith. Yes, we are saved by the gift of God, and it is not by anything that we have done. Yes, the work of salvation is completed. When Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished, that's what he meant. It is finished. The work of salvation is paid in full. There's nothing that we can add to it. And yes, we can have assurance that we are saved. That's why it says in 1 John that these things are written that you might know that you have eternal life. So all of those things are true. However, The Bible does not give us permission to say that because we came forward at a crusade and we made a profession or raised our hand or or, or said a prayer or even heard and believed and for a little while attended church services that therefore I'm saved and that's it. I have the right to just call myself a son of God, you know, without any contradiction at all. The Bible doesn't give us permission to say that. Romans chapter 11, verses 20 and 20 or 20 through 22, Paul says this, speaking of the Gentile salvation. He says, well, because of unbelief, speaking of the Jews, they were broken off and you stand by faith. Be not high minded, but fear for if God spared not the natural branches, speaking of Israel, take heed lest he spare not thee, talking to the Gentile. Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God on them which fell, severity, but toward thee, goodness. Listen, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt also be cut off. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul says this. 
He says, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So someone who says that they went forward or made a profession or even that they believe, but yet they do not depart from their sin. Paul says, do not be deceived. You are not a child of God. You have not been born again and you will not inherit the kingdom of God. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, Peter says this. He says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after that they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Now, before you leave here scared, (laughs) listen to the language of Peter. He says, if a person is entangled in the things that they were set free from, listen, and overcome. Now, every single one of us stumble. The Bible is not talking about sinless perfection where there is none perfect. John wrote and he said, if anyone says he has no sin, then he's deceiving himself. We're all sinners. We're sinful people. But if a person forsakes the way of God in order to live the lifestyle of sin and they are consumed in that lifestyle, you do not have the assurance to be able to just say, I raised my hand, I went forward, I said a prayer, therefore I'm in. Listen, Jude begins by saying that we are preserved and kept by Jesus Christ. And Jude finishes by saying, keep yourselves in the love of God. That is, keep yourself in the place where God can do in your life the things that he is wanting to do. We are kept, we are preserved, we have assurance, we are loved. It's his power, his gift, not ours, but we're called to continue. Paul says, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Now, thus far in Paul's description of who Jesus is, the Colossians would be spot on. They wouldn't have heard anything thus far that they didn't already know. They would say, yeah, we we know that. He is, you know, the incarnate image of the invisible God. He is the sovereign, preeminent creator of all things. He sustains and holds together everything that exists. He's the head of the body, the church, and he's the savior of my soul. They would be spot on with all of that, as I trust would most of us. We would say, yeah, we already know those things. However, there's one thing that Paul is going to bring to their attention in the closing verses of this chapter, wherein they were lacking. They fell short in understanding in this one area, and it's an area where we are apt to fall as well. There's one facet of the faith that they were missing, and he brings it to their attention in these closing verses. And I believe it's his whole agenda for writing this book is that they would grasp this principle, this concept that he's bringing to them in these closing verses. He says in verse 24, he says, Speaking of himself, actually look at the end of verse 23 where he makes reference to himself. He says, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Now speaking of himself in verse 24, he says, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Now, some people have looked at this verse and it's caused their eyebrows to wrinkle a little bit. They read it and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did Paul just say that the sufferings of Christ were not sufficient to meet the needs of the Christian people? Did Paul just say that he is rejoicing in his own sufferings because he is filling up what is lacking of Jesus' sufferings? Is that what Paul is saying in this verse? No, 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 that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is not saying that Jesus is lacking what Paul is supplying, but rather, listen to what Paul is saying. He is saying, 
the Colossians are lacking something that Jesus supplied. Read it again. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I fill up that which is behind, or that which is lacking, of the afflictions of Christ. That is, of something that the afflictions of Christ paid for. And Paul says that I am suffering in my flesh in order to bring to you this facet of the faith, this benefit of the cross that you are not enjoying. And then in verse 25, he says that this is his whole ministry. He says, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God or the, you know, the, the office that was given to me by God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. That is to bring into fullness that which is supplied according to his word. I once knew a man, he lives down, I don't know if he still lives there, he lived down in Westchester. And he made his fortune in a very interesting way. He was a very wealthy man, and this is how he made his money. He would find wealthy people that deceased having no heirs. So he would find these people that that had gazillions of dollars and then died and had no one to leave it to. And then what he would do is he would do his homework and he would find someone that somewhere on the planet was related to this guy by maybe like the 21st cousin first removed. Like anyone that could lay any kind of claim to relation with the wealthy deceased. And then he would find these people and he would say, listen, I've got a proposition for you. I can make you a gazillionaire, but I want 25%. And then he would get them to agree, and then he would put them in touch with the attorneys, and these people would become the beneficiaries of these estates, and he would get 25% of the profits. And so his job, basically, was to find people that had benefits coming their way, and then for a price, he would, you know, hook them up. Now, Paul is doing much the same thing here in the text. He found a benefit, He found a clause in the contract of the cross that supplied to the Colossian church something that they were lacking, only he's not charging them to bring it to them. He's bringing it to them freely because he he sees it as an honor, as a calling from God. But he recognizes that there's something lacking that Jesus wants to supply to them, and now he's going to give it to them. This is my ministry. It's to fulfill the word of God. And then he tells us in verse 26. He says, even The mystery. Now, that word, like, makes our ears perk up, doesn't it? Do you know what the word is in the Greek? It means secret. We all like secrets, don't we? I mean, there's something about a secret that makes us pay attention or become quizzical or curious. We want to know. What's the secret? There's a secret. Paul says, listen, there's a secret. There's something you don't know about concerning this Christian faith that's going to make all the difference for you. The secret that Paul is talking about here is the missing link in the Colossians' Christianity, and oftentimes it's the missing link in yours and mine as well. There's a secret, and it's the thing that makes everything else work. He says, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. The word manifest means previously unknown, but now it is unveiled or made plain. It's in plain sight, and it's made plain to his saints, to you and I. Verse 27, to whom, that's us, God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery, this secret, this mysterious treasure that's been bestowed upon God's people. Among the Gentiles, the least deserving of all people. And here it is. Ready, Colossians? Ready, Calvary Chapel? Here it is. Christ in you. The hope of glory. And I can only imagine the Colossians, upon hearing this for the first time, as it's being read to them what Paul is writing, and they, they, the build-up as he presents to them the person of Christ, and then the mystery, and then what it is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you know what they were probably doing? They probably went, whoa. 
What does that mean? The same way you and I are. What does it mean? Christ in us, the hope of glory, here's what it means. It means this. Listen carefully. Not only is God, Jesus, I mean, not only is Jesus the incarnate image of the invisible God and the sovereign preeminent creator of all things and the sustainer of all that exists and the head of the church and the savior of all them that come to God by the blood of his cross, but he is also, listen, personally sufficient to be and to meet every need that you and I have. Personally sufficient to be and to meet every need that you and I have. When I was in high school, I was on the swim team. And I don't know if you've ever looked at my uh, build but I am not built for swimming. I have very short arms proportionally and legs to my body. I'm naturally very stocky. If I, you know, get a little liber, uh, liberal with my eating, you know, I get big quick. You know, that's just, that's just my body. But I was on the swim team. I don't know why. It didn't make any sense. None. I never won a single race, not once. I think it was just because my friends swam and I had a lot of energy and I loved the workout. And so I was on the swim team. Never won a single race. Never once. However, what if Michael Phelps, the 14-time gold medal Olympist, could be my coach? What if Michael Phelps could come poolside and he could give me some pointers and he could explain to me how to, you know, streamline my body and how to maximize my stretch and how to time my kicking and stroking just the right way so that, you know, here's what would happen if Michael Phelps was my coach. He would be frustrated and I would be frustrated. That's what would happen. Because he would be on the side of the pool watching him be going, no, no, you, you got it wrong. No, 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 left and then you breathe the other time, not, you're off me. And, and I would be there going, oh, I'm never going to get, and I would, and I would just want to drown because of the frustration. Now listen, many people, that's the way they live their Christian life. Jesus is my coach. He's the one that has life and life more abundantly. In him was life. It was handled, it was observed, it was touched by the apostles, and they've declared it unto me, and now I have a coach. And so I learned from Jesus, this is how I'm to live. I'm not to lust, I'm not to lust, I'm not to lust. Okay, don't lust. Stretch the eyes upward. Put the feet downward. Straight ahead. Don't lust, don't lust. You know, and I fail. And I, oh, I, oh, Jesus, I know I can do this. I've seen your example. I've studied the tapes. I watched your life. I know what you gave yourself to. I'm going to get this. I'm going to get this. I'm going to, not going to, okay, let's try a different one. Anger, you know. Fly stroke. Okay, here we go. Not going to get angry today. Not going to get angry. Not going to get angry. Stub the toe. Mm, no, <laughs> it's not going to happen. You know, Georgia spent a hundred bucks. At what? You know, and no, no, I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not. I'm not. And here's what happened. I fail and I begin to get frustrated. Why? Because Jesus is my coach. That was where the Colossians were. Jesus was coach. But consequently, it meant they needed a lot of other coaches. And so they gave themselves to every Jewish scholar, every Greek philosopher, every line of tradition that came down the pike, every tradition, every ritual, every rudiment of something that had the shred of spirituality, the Colossians gave themselves to it because they were trying to live the Christian life. Now, what if... Michael Phelps could not coach me, but get in me. What if Michael Phelps could get in me? And so now, no longer am I watching what he's doing and trying to copy it motion for motion, but now I'm just simply yielding to the presence of Michael Phelps within me, and now I have his strength. I have his skill. I have his talent. 
I have his mental tenacity and toughness to be able to, you know, stay strong in the heat of the competition. And, and if Michael Phelps can get in me, then I become the beneficiary of all that he is in the race, and I get to reap the rewards afterwards. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says to the Colossian Christians that this is the mystery, the glory of the riches of this mystery among the Gentiles, that Christ is in you. He's not your coach. He's not calling you to just watch what he does and then mimic it and copy it, but he has availed himself to you as your redeemer that he's willing to move inside of you and live through you that you might have his strength, his skill, his talent, his toughness, his spirit, his life, his supply, and all that he is. And what this means for you and for me, it means that everything that Jesus is universally... He is in me personally. So, he's the incarnate image of the invisible God. And he's in me. That means he's going to conform me into the image of God. That's his work within my life. And little by little, my life is going to become a reflection of God because Christ is in me. He's the sovereign, preeminent creator of all that exists, everything that exists. He's in me. Therefore, he's going to be the sovereign, preeminent owner of everything that I am. Every circumstance of my life is going to be held by him, controlled by him. He's sovereign and preeminent over all of it. Nothing can happen to me apart from his knowledge, because he possesses all things in every realm, heaven and earth, in every dimension, the visible and the invisible things. It's held by him. The principalities, the powers, the thrones, the dominions, every system that makes up any shred of what this life represents, it's his because he is in me and therefore he is going to control all those things. He is the sustainer of all that is. Therefore, he's going to sustain all that concerns me. Even though, scientifically, it seems like everything should be flying apart. My family should be flying apart. My finances should be flying apart. My relationship should be falling apart, shredding at the seams. My sanity, my joy, it should be blowing apart like an atom bomb. It doesn't make sense that these things are held together. But because Christ is in me and he holds all things together, he's able to hold all things together in my life. He is holy and unblameable and unreprovable. And he's in me. Therefore, he is going to be freeing me from those things that formerly were my addictions and my vices and the sins of my flesh and the things that kept me back from God, he's going to be working out his righteousness in me because he is in me. Do you understand the implications of what this means? We can rest. It's what Jesus meant when he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light and you will find rest for your souls because no longer are you striving and straining and trying to live this Christian life in the energy of your own flesh, but you simply yield to the power of Christ who is willing to come and live inside of you and be your personal sufficiency, to be your help, to be your strength, to be all that you need and to provide all that you need in every instance. That's what he does. It's Christ in you. And therefore, you don't need some man. You don't need some philosophy. You don't need the newest Christian book. You don't need to go on and listen to, to that or whatever. You have Jesus Christ in you. You don't need the philosophical counselor. You have Jesus Christ inside of you. you say, well, how do you live this way? He gives the answer in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Look at, look, just look ahead real quick. We're wrapping up. He says, As you have re therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, 
How do we live this way? How do we live Christ in us? The same way you received Christ. How did you receive Christ? You received Christ by faith, didn't you? You heard the word of the gospel. You chose to believe it, receive it, and appropriate it in your life. And it began to do its work. And so how do I live in Christ or by the power of Christ in me? Well, first, you just simply believe it. You receive it by faith. And you say, yes, Lord, I've been doing, I've been doing this all wrong. You're the Lord. You're in me. It's your power. So first it's by faith. Then, verse 7, he says, rooted and built up in him. And the the second thing is by faithful patience. Patience. He says, rooted and built up. What do you know about things that are rooted? It takes time. You're rooted in something. A seed germinates, and then it takes root in the soil, and then it grows. And that's how this Christian life happens. It isn't overnight. It isn't in a flash, in an instant. But you walk with him. You're rooted in him. And then you're built up in him. How are you built up in him? Well, you feed your most holy faith. You feed upon the word of God. You fellowship with Jesus. You check in with him constantly. You depend upon him. You rely upon him. You believe on him. And you find yourself growing in that. And here's the result if you choose to live this way and hear Paul's exhortation to you tonight. It's in verse 28, back in chapter 1. Speaking of Christ, he says, Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, listen, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now that word perfect doesn't mean sinless perfect. What it means is, Listen, complete and mature. That if you live this way and let Christ be the Christian in you, you're going to be complete and mature. You're going to come to completion. There's going to be fruition. You're going to see the stability and the life that Jesus desires to give in you. It's what he wants to do. What will be the outcome of living this kind of life? A thousand years from now, people will consider your time on planet Earth. Your name will go down in the chronicles of history, and they'll say, there was nothing extraordinary about their childhood. They grew up in seemingly an average family, a poor family. There was nothing particularly of any talent or any recognizable gifts, and you would never really pull them out of a crowd. There was nothing supernaturally special about them. But for some reason, the legacy that they left on this planet, the lives that they affected, the things that they were able to accomplish in a single lifetime, what was their secret? The answer? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't leave us a list of instructions and tell us how to do this. And you're sitting in heaven with a clipboard pacing poolside, waiting to see how we'll do. But Lord, you loved us so much that you were willing not only to make a way for us to be saved through the blood of your cross, but you availed your very precious presence to us that you might come and live inside of us. And how I pray that tonight, Lord, in whatever area this needs to apply, it would apply in the lives of your people, in the lives of us here that are gathered. We ask that you would empower us, Lord. We ask that you would help us to rest. We ask that you would give us the victory. We ask that you would be our light and our salvation. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to understand and comprehend your love. That you loved us so much that you weren't willing that we should perish, but that we should have everlasting life. And that you now love us so much that you're so interested in our lives. You care about every breath. Every hair on our head is of the utmost concern to you, Lord. The thoughts, the concerns, the destiny, the hopes, the desires the pain that we feel, the hurts, the wounds, all of it, Lord, you've carried all of it. 
how I pray tonight, Lord Jesus, that you would come so near to us, that you would become our all-sufficient help and the Lord of our lives. We just thank you for this gift. Thank you for this precious gift of your son. Please, as we close the service, would you bless us, Lord? Would you come and fill us again? Would you apply this word to us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.